story is told about one-time heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali who was flying to one of his engagements and during the flight the aircraft ran into bad weather. The passengers were instructed to fasten their seat belts immediately and everyone was compliant except Ali. So the flight attendant approached him and requested that he buckled up, only that she would hear this audacious response. Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant didn't miss a beat. She said, Superman don't need an airplane either. Buckle up. <laughs> well, sadly, 46 million people in America today have determined that they don't need the seatbelt of God and His Word to navigate them through turbulence in life. These people call themselves nuns, and they are divided into three categories. There are atheists who believe that God does not exist, agnostics who believe that you can't know that God exists, and what we call apatheists who don't care if God exists. In 2007, the Lilly Foundation funded a survey that revealed 15% of Americans cited none when they were asked for their religious preference, and the number has increased dramatically to 20% of the population in just the last six years. And maybe you noticed this past week, the American atheists have filed suit in federal court to ban pastors from accident scenes and from crisis situations. And the Air Force Academy this past week determined that the words, so help me God, in their honor oath, would no longer be required. Things are changing, friends, and they are changing fast. Several reasons, I think, could be cited for this dramatic rise in the nuns. This is my list. The erosion of trust in leadership and authority in the home, in schools, in business, in government, and even in churches. There has been this erosion of trust. As young people, many of them under age 30, have seen a lack of moral leadership in these institutions. Secondly, the rejection of biblical absolutes and the resulting secularization of society. The more we get away from the Bible, the more secularized our society becomes. Thirdly, the promotion of ungodliness and immorality in the media, and I, I don't need to tell you that, you, you are seeing the evolution happen 
rather rapidly these days. And finally, the amplification of unbelief by angry atheists. Now, I want to camp out on this last one for just a moment because I believe these angry atheists are giving legitimacy and even respectability to unbelief in our generations. It used to be, it used to be that a militant atheist like Madeleine Murray O'Hare with her over-the-top personal and legal assaults on the Christian faith was fairly easy to dismiss. But today, unbelief has found its voice in a new generation of atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Hawking. Richard Dawkins is the author of The God Delusion. It's an angry diatribe against religion, and he asserts that to raise your child in the faith is tantamount to child abuse. I thought I might play a portion of his audio book, but friends, it is so laced with blasphemy and profanity, I just couldn't in good conscience do it. And I can't imagine why anyone would get so emotionally exercised about fighting a God he doesn't even believe exists. English writer G.K. Chesterton once said, after meeting a few atheists, I became a Christian. I can see why. Christopher Hitchens wrote, God is not great, how religion poises everything. And here's what he writes on page 217. How can we ever know how many children had their psychological and physical lives irreparably maimed by the inculcation of faith? Yeah, let's do that. Let's compare the psychological and physical wellness of godly and ungodly children and see what the qualitative outcomes look like. Stephen Hawking, in his 2009 book, The Grand Design, argues that the laws of physics show that there is no need for a supreme being. Then he turns right around and makes a god out of gravity in his explanation for how the universe could generate itself out of nothing. This only begs the question, friends, how did gravity get here, you see? Personally, I find Dr. William Lane Craig's arguments for the existence of God to be the most irrefutable and compelling. He talks about the cosmological argument that the universe came from something rather than from nothing, and the teleological argument that the complexity of the universe, the radar system of a bat, the inner workings of the human eye or the nervous system are the case for an intelligent designer. The moral argument that true morality can find its origin only in a holy God. Otherwise, how do you get good and evil, right and wrong, moral and immoral in a world that just happened to happen? You don't get a value system. And then the resurrection of Jesus, that the evidence of the resurrection has never been credibly refuted. And then fifthly, the experience of God, all the 
Hundreds of millions of changed lives are evidence of His existence. So does Jesus, the eternal Word, the co-creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, does He have a word for these nuns? We've heard from Paul. We've heard from Peter. We've heard from John. What about Jesus? Does He have a word for the nuns? He does. And I believe it's found in His parable in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 13, and this parable has often been called the Great Invitation. As with so many of His parables, there's much more to the story than meets the eye. It reveals some very important truths for anyone who's still trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. The drama divides into three acts, and each one is about this great invitation. In the first act, the invitation is offered. In the second act, the invitation is rejected. And in the third act, the invitation is neglected. Let's look at Acts 1. Act 1, rather. The invitation is offered, verses 1 to 3. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to tell them to come. Now, ancient wedding customs were very different than the modern version, but they did have one thing in common. A wedding, back in the day, was a big deal. It was a festive event, and the wedding feast itself could last for days. Friends and family would come from far and wide, and after all, this was the king's son. And to be invited to this wedding would be a big deal. People would be boasting about this for years to come. A little sidebar here. I have to confess that I am not a big royal family advocate. I, I'm sure this is probably why I was overlooked in the invitations to William and Kate's wedding ceremony at Westminster Abbey and the christening of little George at St. James Palace. I, I'm just not into the whole fascination with the British aristocracy. Don't you think, don't you think that... It's, this, it's kind of pompous and pretentious, kind of a waste of tax dollars, and waste of time. Don't you think, sometimes, don't you think that Prince Charles and his sons ought to get honest jobs? And Camilla Parker Bowles ought to rattle some pots and pans. Just kidding. But I do understand I do understand the amazing honor of being invited to a royal wedding banquet for a prince, capital P, by a king, capital K. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I'm celebrating anticipating this celebration one day in eternity, big time. Here's the point. You take the happiest, most joyful experiences on earth that you can think of. You imagine right now the best dinner party that you have ever attended, the finest food you have ever eaten. God has something better planned. 1 Corinthians 2.9, 
No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Clearly, people who picture heaven as being dull and boring don't have a clue. God is preparing, Jesus is preparing an incomparable celebration, and we are all invited. You've been invited all your life, you know. He began inviting you the first time you heard your grandmother read you a Bible story. The first time you overheard your dad praying beside your bed or your parents took you to church or a friend took you to vacation Bible school or youth group or your neighbor asked you to nut night at your church or the Gideons provided a Bible in your motel room or you heard an inspirational song on the radio or in a worship service or you heard his invitation in a sermon or a lesson and every time your conscience heated up or you have felt an inner longing for something more, he was calling you to the best thing in your life, to experience the best time in your life. Everywhere and always, God has been knocking on the door of your heart. He has spread out everything he has on the table. And you and I are invited, and even if you didn't know that before, you know it now. And even if you're a nun, you're especially personally invited. Act 2. The invitation is refused. Jesus said, but they refused to come. And he sent more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. In ancient times, two invitations to a wedding would typically be sent. The first would go out well in advance, months ahead of time. It was kind of, I guess what you would call a save the date notification. Messengers would hand deliver the information. It would say something like this, the king's son is getting married next fall. The banquet will follow the ceremony. He wants you to come. And potential guests would acknowledge the invitation. They would declare their intention to be there. Then, closer to the time, a second invite would arrive with the details. Plan to arrive at the wedding and reception at the palace next Friday by sunset. But here, the parable turns ugly. Some of the king's subjects decide they can't be bothered. They have other priorities. They considered their business to be more important than the king's invitation. Others actually responded with violence. So the potential guests did more than just refuse the king's invitation. They rejected the king himself. 
And I hope you see the application. It's a picture of the way the Lord deals with us. Abundant life and eternal life through Christ are by invitation. No one is forced. You can, though it makes no sense, decline the great invitation to the Lord's wedding feast. No one has to go. Anyone can either politely ignore the Lord's invitation or could even become hostile to Him. Either way, the results are the same. Two things are going to happen. Number one, the Lord will respond. Judgment day is coming. I, I know it sounds like a cliche. It doesn't make it any less true. Judgment day is coming. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen for years, but it will happen. And on that day, those who refused the invitation and rejected the Lord will regret the decision, but they will know it was their choice. Number two, the celebration is going to go on, whether we choose to be a part of it or not. Now, the Lord wants every one of us in the place that He's preparing, but He is a gentleman. He will not force anyone, and He won't cancel the celebration just because you don't show. Back to the story. The king tells his servants to go and get whomever they can find. No one is too poor. No one is too bad. No one is too messed up. No one is too old for the king's celebration. You do know that, don't you? I think some people don't know that. Sometimes you will hear them say, I'm not the religious type. Or, I've waited too long. It's too late for me. Or, I made a mess of my life or my wife and family would disown me. We've all heard some version of this from folks who are convinced that God, the God of heaven, could never be interested in them. Or worse, maybe some of us have expressed such a conclusion about others. But listen, no one who is living and breathing is beyond the reach of God's grace. Listen, let's all agree today. This is the most important invitation any of us will ever receive, and it is the most important invitation that these 1,800-plus people around us on the walls will ever receive. To turn it down, that's unimaginable, unthinkable. But some do. Act 3. The invitation is neglected. In verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, Jesus could have just concluded this parable a verse earlier, and the story would have ended quite well. The king offers an invitation. The A-listers refuse. He extends the invitation to others. The servants gather a crowd of outcasts for the feast, and the wedding hall is filled with guests, and everybody lives happily ever after. That would be a gratifying ending to an otherwise disappointing story. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. Everyone is gathered for the royal wedding feast, and then the king arrives, and all is well until he notices one man is not properly dressed. The king asks him for an explanation. The man offers no excuse. The king orders him bound and expelled. But it's a far more serious thing here than being exiled from a wedding celebration. Are you familiar with the biblical terminology for eternal punishment? It's right here, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. In plain language, Jesus is talking about hell. So what's the point here? Well, first, what it's not about. This is not a lesson about a dress code for church, please. There's a funny story that Bob Russell, longtime pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, tells on himself. When our son Kyle was called to assist with the preaching there about 10 years ago, he was, he was very young. He was 26, and he was moving from a new church plant in California. And you know out in California, things tend to be a little more informal, a little more laid back. Kyle might have owned a tie. His motto has always been, if you die, I will wear a tie. (laughs) He does wear a tie at funerals. Well, Bob is a very buttoned-up suit-and-tie preacher, and Bob once told me, he said, you know, if I could get Kyle in a suit and tie at church, that would be just perfect. So one day, Bob tried his logic on Kyle. And he asked him, Kyle, now, if you were going into the office of the President of the United States, you would wear a suit and tie, wouldn't you? Kyle replied, not if he was my dad. Bob said he didn't have a good comeback for that one. (laughs) Well, 40 years ago, no one ever thought we'd live to see the day when anything rather than Suits and ties would be worn in church, not to mention jeans and T-shirts and flip-flops. But times have changed. So those of us who are uncomfortable with casual attire in worship, we just need to get over it because we got bigger fish to fry than worrying about whether the next generation dresses like we dressed when uh, we were their age. Besides... No one has a clue about what's in the heart of another person based on what they wear to worship. I would say, however, that how we dress can affect the way we feel about ourselves. It it can affect the way we act. Veteran missionary Max Randall, Missy Altman's grandfather, would get up early in the African bush and polish his shoes. He was asked about why he did that, serving in the jungle and all. And he said, having shined shoes helps me get more done. Having shined shoes affects the way I feel about myself. So casual attire is fine at church, but not casual commitment, not an indifferent attitude toward God. So if dressing in your Sunday best helps you prepare to give God your best, then do it. If it's not a factor, then don't. Back to the parable. That's what it does not mean. Here's what it does mean. The king seems unfair. How how could he expect someone coming right off the street 
to have wedding attire, especially since it probably is someone who is of a lower socio and economic class in that day. Well, listen, in those days, the king would supply the guests with royal robes for the feast. It was up to the king to supply these robes. And evidently, everyone else who was there was dressed for the occasion, and they had come off the streets. So this man had no excuse. The guest wrongly assumed that he could come to the wedding feast on his own terms. Maybe he was stubborn. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me how to dress. I'm good enough the way I am. If the king doesn't like the way I dress, then he knows what he can do with his banquet. Well, I guess he showed the king who's boss. Jesus is referencing here anyone who dares to presume upon God's grace. The wedding feast was by invitation. It should not be taken for granted. It should be received humbly and with gratitude. And listen, we dare not ignore the king's terms. In the Word of God, it is revealed how we are to come into Christ, how we are to prepare for the wedding feast of the Lamb. You see it in the conversion accounts in the book of Acts. There are about five steps, and I don't have Scripture references up here, but I could have. We just don't have time to take that trip. But here's what we see in the book of Acts and in the epistles. We come to Him on His terms. He requires that we believe in and that we trust in Jesus. He requires that we repent of our sins. That is, we are genuinely sorry for our past sins And we commit ourselves to living in ways that reflect God's character and holiness. Thirdly, that we confess Him as our Savior and Lord. Fourthly, that we are baptized into Christ. And then finally, that we live a faithful Christian life of generosity and service. Jesus said that His disciples should be taught to obey, here it is, everything he had commanded. And he said that. He said that right after commanding, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is commanding baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Incidentally, this is the only command in the entire Bible that's given in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Never make the mistake of thinking that because we're saved by grace, we can approach faith with a a whatever attitude and anything goes attitude. It could be fatal. We come to Him on His terms, not on our terms. He is supplying the robe of righteousness to us. We must all be appropriately clothed at the wedding feast, and there are two beautiful verses in Scripture that emphasize this. Paul read a third one during our communion time, but Romans 13, 14, here it is, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And then Galatians 3, 26 and 7, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So a word to the nuns today from Jesus. It's a story about a king who has a celebration for his son's wedding, and the invitations go out, but potential guests refuse the invitation. Like nuns today, they're either indifferent or they're downright hostile, and they pay the ultimate price for their rejection of the king's invitation. The celebration goes on without them. Strangers and outsiders fill the house, but one guest makes the mistake of thinking, it doesn't matter how you come, it doesn't matter what you do, and he would live to regret his willfulness. Now for the punchline of the parable from Jesus in verse 14 of Matthew 22. For many are invited but few are chosen. That is another way of saying everyone is invited, but few wind up at the table. Why? Well, it's, it's not God's fault. Not everyone will accept the invitation to enter the kingdom, and not everyone is serious, serious enough to clothe themselves in God's righteousness. Behind this parable is a verse from Isaiah, I suspect, was in the mind of Jesus all along. It's a beautiful verse, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Friends, this morning an invitation has been offered. It is rejected by some. It is neglected by others. Have you responded to that invitation? We close every service at Crossroads with an invitation to give any person present the opportunity to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, to be rooted and grounded in the family of God, the imperfect family of God, the church. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, in these moments, we pray that the words of Jesus in this parable on the last Tuesday the last week of his life, pray, Lord, that we would hear and heed these words. As the clock is ticking and Jesus will soon be betrayed and crucified, he wanted the Jews and Gentiles, all peoples, peoples of every tongue and tribe and nation, to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And across the centuries that have passed since then, we hear his invitation, and we want to answer positively, and we want to influence others to answer positively. We want to go to heaven, and we want to take as many people as we can with us. And so we commit ourselves to this in Jesus' name.
Amen.